श्री गौरी वैष्णवपुर परंपरा की जय जैसे ऐसी भक्ति विराम तो स्वामी प्रभुपात की जय भक्ति रक्षक श्री राधे गोस्वामी महाराज की जय भक्ति सिद्धांत सृष्टि ठाकुर प्रभुपात की जय श्री भक्ति विनोद परिवार की जय और भक्तवृंद की जय Good evening, everyone. I'd like to thank our hosts, Ram Das and Guru Dasi, for inviting me here. I've been coming to North Carolina for a few years now, and uh, most of you probably don't know this, but the first devotees that I met from North Carolina were Ram Das and uh, and his good wife. So <laughs> we're finally here at their house. I've never been here before. It's a lovely place and a pleasure to be here. While I've been here this time, I've been speaking from Bhagavad Gita mostly, and usually when I go on speaking tours like this, on the last day of my last talk, which is this is of this particular visit, I ask you to do more talking than usual. By way of asking for any questions, so does anyone have any questions? It's a mutual type of affair. Bodhayantas parasparam tushanti cha, ramanti cha. Mutually enlightening one another. So good questions are fifty percent of the equation. Bad questions are not bad either. <laughs> so, any thoughts? Any questions about anything? What have you been speaking about when you're on this tour? <laughs> We've been uh, speaking from the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Ninth chapter is in the middle of the text, and it's about Shuddha Bhakti or Ananya Bhakti, Bhakti or devotion that is um, un- unencumbered by any other influence. <laughs> It's the uh, chapter in Bhagavad Gita that um, Krishna kind of loses himself, if you will, and begins to speak about bhakti, and he speaks about it as uh, he refers to it as the highest knowledge, the most uh, secret of secrets, and so forth. And as he begins to explain, glorify the, the knowledge, the bhakti that is the knowledge that he's going to speak about, which has been an interesting point. The idea that devotion is knowledge is a little bit. Perhaps hard to digest, but then again, love has a kind of knowledge that goes with it. So when you're in love, you know what to do, right? As far as how to be happy, and that's what's important. So, anyway, in many respects, Krishna has explained how bhakti or love really is the uh, the be all and end all of of knowing. And uh, after he glorifies the uh, the knowledge that he's going to speak about in order to get his students' attention, then he explains why, in spite of it being as extraordinary as it is and easily accessible, why some people are not interested in it. And then he begins to explain the metaphysical foundation out of which it uh, naturally arises. And, um, and then he talks a little bit about what, what it's not. And uh, in- inevitably, of course, we haven't gotten this far by any means. Uh, we only got through a few texts, two or three, three exactly. But inevitably, in talking about bhakti, he has to start to talk about his his uh, his bhaktas. And uh, this is where he starts to lose him, himself. In uh, in love for his devotees, he says very extraordinary things about them. 
and uh, it becomes more and more emotional as the chapter goes on. And uh, I suppose that it, uh, it, 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 it might bring um, flashing red lights of anti-nomanism. Uh, he becomes so uh, <laughs> so strong about the efficacy of bhakti, and, uh, and that he says, even if one who is my devotee has a fault, that should be overlooked. He says, who, who glorifies the faults of my devotees, he will become righteous by such. Pretty extreme point to make. Huh? Those who glorify the faults of my devotees, they will become righteous, which is far below devotion. Of course, we'll wonder how devotees can have, have faults, and there's different ways to, to think about that. One way is, of course, how could they not, in one sense, because bhakti is very, very generous. So this is one of the two excellences, you could say, of bhakti. First being that it reaches very high on the theological and spiritual experiential scale. Very high. It's a post-liberated type of um, activity. Actually, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, our tradition, where it really excels is talking about what happens within liberation. Most traditions excel in speaking about how to attain liberation and the nature of liberated life. And they're usually a little short on on um, the discussion about such, which is considered to be ineffable anyway. You follow me? How can you speak effectively about that which lies beyond the limits of speech, beyond mind? How can you think about it? We live within the confines of our mind, informed as it is by our sensual experiences. This is a very small world of goods and bads and happies and sads, all relative to our perceptions. What's good for you may be bad for me. Which is it? And it's a relative. What's hot for you may be cold for me, right? What's happy for you may be sad for me. So which is it? So the, the idea is, if we can understand the relativity of such, then we, with a little bit of exercise our thinking, we could conjecture there must be a means of perceiving beyond this filter, if you will, or the colored glasses of our senses. If you're wearing red glasses, you see the world as red. If you're wearing blue glasses, you'll see the world as blue. If I don't have any glasses, I may see many colors, right? So there must be a way of accessing and understanding the nature of being that's not limited by the faculties of our senses, our minds, and our intellect. And that's, I think, well, th- well thought out idea, tarko apratishtanat, sutras say, that by reasoning, one never gets any standing and comprehensive knowing. Every reasoning has a counter-reasoning and so forth. So it opens us to the idea that if we are to have comprehensive knowing, a perfect knowing, which is desirable, mm-hmm. perfect knowing, louder, perfect knowing, then we have to have a perfect means of arriving at that knowing. An imperfect means will not allow us to arrive at perfect knowledge. And we want perfect knowledge because actions are informed by knowledge. And so to move happily in the world that hap- and be fully happy, that I suppose the goal of everyone, then we have to have, uh, to be perfectly happy, we have to have perfect knowledge. Everyone is in pursuit of perfect knowledge. Some people say it doesn't exist. And they criticize those who perpetually pursue it. 
but even those who say it doesn't exist, they pursue it nonetheless. So who's crazy? Those who say that it exists and pursue it, or those who say that it doesn't exist but pursue it anyway? So we'll, we'll take the side of the, the former. That's our group. <laughs> we think that it exists, and we think that in order to arrive at it, there has to be a perfect means. And the means by which we're arriving at you know, our epistemology, kind of living epistemology, a uh, way of knowing what we know is through the medium of our minds and senses and intellect and so forth. And, and um, as I'm explaining in a very simplistic way, that's um, rather uh, subjective and, uh, and relative and for you it's one thing, for me it's another. So some people may say, well, that's what it is. Let's live in the postmodern world and close the philosophy books or something. But, but that's to live in doubt. With anything that characterizes postmodernism, it's doubt. Somebody asked me what I thought about it. I said, if I could say something about postmodernism, and I said, I, I doubt it. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is, a, you know, doubt is a pause, anyway. It's not, it's, it's, if you doubt, suspicion leads to suspension. So, without faith, therefore, Krishna says, indeed, the faith, the person is his or her faith. Shraddhoayam purushaha. We are our faith. In other words, to the extent that we, we don't have faith, we, do, we don't move. We're in, sus, we're in suspended animation. Just like you're somewhat suspended in your animate animation in terms of listening to me by your intellect. I'm saying things, but you're filtering it through your intellect, and some things you let in and some things you might not. You're kind of, well, I don't know about that. I'm thinking about it and so forth. I'm trying to talk to your heart, from my heart, but as she said a long time ago, uh, I tried to say I love you, but the words got in the way. Something like that. <laughs> it's an old song. Words got in the way. So, love uh, knows no reason, as they say. And when we speak about absolute love, that's absolutely so. Reason, love is not unreasonable, it's reasonable to love, but we have to arrive there by something other than reasoning. We have to actually exercise our heart. And, uh, And this, then, is a perfect means of knowing, if you will. What I mean by that is that when we see the limitations of our faculties, sensual faculties, intellectual, mental faculties, in terms of their capacity to reveal and inform us as to the nature of being and, and so forth, we are met with, uh, as I said last night, the, the fact that life is a mystery and intellect is, does not hold the key to unlock that. We can look and look and unlock one door after another, there will always be another door there. We may find ourselves ending up at the door we started with again. Uh, so we have to rest with the fact, I think, that life is mysterious. And that why would we want to, uh, anyway, bore ourselves to death with uh, knowing it and in, in, in bringing it in the fists of our intellect? Really, the mystery of life, it begets faith in a way because as I was saying one of these nights or days uh, recently that um, when we're faced with the fact that that we as a finite being cannot know the finite this is like a mathematical impossibility finite no means to, no means to 
to have. I know you. I, to capture you, to know, to transcend, to to rise above, to know it, to understand it, to have. So for the finite to know the infinite, this is not a mathematically good idea in one sense. But if the infinite of its infinite capacity should choose to reveal itself to the finite, then what becomes impossible from the finite perspective is readily possible from the perspective of the infinite. Infinite possibility holds within itself. So if reality chooses to reveal itself to us, then imperfect as our means in of themselves are alone, we now have help from beyond, so to speak. So perfect knowing, if you will, will be arrived at by a perfect means, and the perfect means is kind of a, like I like to say, a folding of the hands. We have to become humble, and we have to, uh, if we're to go forward, knowing that it's unknowable, the unknown and unknowable, then we have to have some faith, otherwise we, 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 we stop moving forward. Then there are many thoughtful people that have committed suicide, right? Big philosophers and so forth. But there's another group that goes forward. Instead of suspending their animation or terminating it, relatively speaking, they choose to go forward, and they go forward with faith. And faith is a kind of then provides a kind of knowing. It's not the absence of reason, faith. But knowledge, or I should say reasoning, is an aspect of faith only. Faith is an active thing. Faith is a call to answer to the truth. Reasoning is to think about it. They're different things. To sit on the fence is one thing, and to enter into the pasture, that's another. That's what faith is about. So reason is an aspect of faith. Our faith should be informed by reason. It should be well-reasoned. We should have good reason to have faith. But reason leaves off there at a certain point. It is not the... It has no... How do you say? Um, it uh, has no value for purchasing real estate in a land where there's no death. This is a dead thing itself. Intellect, mind, body, these will pass. So faith has penetrating power. It's a substance, really. I mean, we live in a world of doubt. There should be little doubt about that. And as we can see, and are readily experienced, it's a tangible experience. This is a world of doubt. So why not a world of faith? So, to move in that direction, that requires a, a perfect means. And the perfect means is then a descending one. From that side, if, if, if reality exercises itself in relation to ourselves, then we can know. If God wants you to know, then you can know. Well, you say, well, if he wants me to know, then I'll know. He does. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he reaches out, and there are mediums through which he does so. Mediums that we can embrace with, with our senses, mediums that we can embrace with our mind and our intellect. These are the meeting points, if you will, between the eternal and the temporal. Halfway point. The, the altar, the, the, the icon, the deity, made of metal or wood as it may appear. But if we approach it in a particular way, we get a different experience. The book is ink and paper, cardboard, temporal. You can burn it and throw it in the fire. But the right book, like, like Bhagavad Gita, for example, we're talking about, if you read the book, 
and you follow the, you hear the, what the book's saying, how it speaks to you, what it call, it speaks to you about being more than what you your present experience is, while you know, you can be more than what your present life seems to be about. We know it. That's what human life is. Human life is a kind of knowing that we could be and do more than what we are doing. There's an evolutionary kind of process that, uh, by which we arrive in human life, which is the time, in a sense, that we're all living, which is a good time. We're living in human time, all of us here. We've lived in other times, is the implication. As much as we readily see, there is life in different forms and there are consequences for actions. Now we have a human life, so let's say it's a great opportunity. It's like parole compared to prison. We're on parole now. You have, you have freedoms and with them come responsibilities. In less complex forms of life, then, they don't have the same freedoms. Freedom to think, to, to reason deeply, and even to exercise the heart and do something voluntarily, which is certainly more than reasoning. That's why I like to differentiate humans from lower species of life, life not really because they can reason, but because they can, they can love, they can sacrifice. This is huge. In Gita it says that God sent forth humans and sacrifice together and said, be happy by sacrifice. This also tells us that life is not reasonable because according to like math, a controlling language, if you will, if you have four and you give away three, you have less, right? But according to our experience, whenever we give, we have more. I mean, when we really give, we have more. We become more. We find out more about ourselves. We become a more evolved being by giving, not by taking. No one thinks that Hitler is more evolved than Gandhi. But he was a bigger brute, right? Survival of the fittest. So we are speaking here, more appropriate for human society, survival of the, uh, of the, what will be the opposite of the brute? Huh? Of the kindest. Kind, kindness. Uh, survival comes to the kind people. This, of course, takes us to this kind of what people will think is in, intangible getting and gain and growth. Only they will think that much, though, as much as they have not given themselves. Because when you really give, then you know you've grown. You become a better person, a bigger person, a kinder person, a more evolved person. And you're evolving beyond the limitations of your human existence, which the human existence, as, I say, as I'm saying, leads us to believe that we can be more than what we are. It's an interesting point because it's, a, it's an intuition and we shouldn't base everything on intuition. If I have an intuition that, uh, that um, you know, we should turn right up here and we'll get there. You might want to believe it, you might not. It might be right. But if, if a lot of people have the same intuition, what about all people? What if every human being has an intuition? And it's, they all have the same basic intuition, a sense, a feeling, 
that, that, that they could be more. That's why we try to, as I said before, we try to fly in the sky, we try to dive to the depths of the ocean. Birds don't try to submerge themselves and explore the bottom of the ocean, and fish down there don't try to fly high in the sky. Why do we try to do these things? Because, because there's an evolution in terms of consciousness. When we arrive at human life, we're coming out from underneath the covers of the slumber uh, of, of material existence. We have some freedoms, right? And, and, and we, what, what the freedom really is that we are be relatively free from the encumbrances that matter imposes upon us. Like I said, we're on parole. They're still in the jail. So there's still a leash on you. We're still tied to the world, so to speak. But the self is coming out, in other words. The self can fly in the sky. The self can live in the ocean. The self is indestructible. Hmm? A sense of our self is coming to the fore. So we feel we could do anything. We could go everywhere. We, we try to do that, but by... We try to do that by exercising our intelligence, but the way to do it is by exercising your heart. You should use your head to soften your heart. That is a good use of the head. Use your head to soften your heart. By giving, by sacrifice, we grow, we progress, and we experience uh, the, the, the expansion of self as opposed to the contraction of self that comes from taking. We're all taking to one extent or another. But anyway, the point is in human life, this, we have this, this is a unanimous kind of uh, intuitive sense. Some of us give up on that due to bad reasoning and so forth. That's true. But it arises in, in uncivilized primitive society and it's prevalent even throughout the most sophisticated forms of society. This sense. We should trust in that. We should pursue that. And this is this is the way. This is by by uh, it's um, kind of going. We have to learn to move in a backwards way, in a different way than we've been moving for lifetimes and lifetimes. We've been moving by taking. You know, in the less complex forms of life, it's all largely about taking. Hmm? In human life, we can, as I said, learn to give, and it's very. This is very backward. Imagine if you've been through millions of species of life before you have arrived at human life, how accustomed you are to being on the take. And this human form of life, as much as we identify with it, also has needs, and so we have to take. But we have the chance to learn how to give. But we are just like children in this, this beginning. And when we do give, then we don't always know where to give, where we can give the most, or we give but attach some getting to that, so it's not, we don't get the full experience. And yoga, spiritual life, that's what it's about. It's for honing this, this truth of life. You see, uh, like I'm saying, hmm, that this is our experience. You, go, you grow by getting, therefore life is mystical. It's not rational. So why try to harness it, take the mystery out of it? That's more exciting that way. Intellect will bore you to death. That's, uh, philosophy has practically come to an end in, in, in our times, actually. Philosophy has detached itself um, in Europe from, from theology. 
from revelation in the Western world. In India, philosophy has always been attached to revelation, and revelation dates back in India, of course, much further than than the Western revelation, the Bible, for example, the Koran, the Abrahamic uh, religions, and, and systematic theologizing, if you will, about revelation. The sutras, for example, of Vyasa are the first example in human society of attempting to make a systematic theology out of out of revelation in the form of the Upanishads. Upanishad, it means sit close. The implication is because I want to tell you a secret, some special knowledge, different kind of knowledge, not the knowledge of how to acquire and how to acquire and and serve, uh, uh, acquire knowledge that will serve my agenda, my material agenda, my sense of self. Not that kind of knowledge. You know, like you go to the university and you want to look at how much is it gonna, am I going to get paid if I go to medical school when I get out? What about accounting? What about IT? And you get a counselor and it's all very pragmatic uh, and so forth. And there's some mix in there of what you want to do too, but it has to pay up, pay off or it'll be a problem. So we, we are tending to gather knowledge to further our agenda. The Upanishads and Revelation is about a kind of knowledge that if we hear it from the right source, we start to understand this knowledge has an agenda of its own and I'm on it. I cannot put this knowledge on my agenda to further my cause. It has a cause. It has a purpose. It has an agenda and I'm in included as part of its agenda. It's a little, oh, a little perhaps off-putting at first, but at the same time we feel, but it's a good agenda. It's a comforting agenda. It's, a, it's, it's, it's heartening. It's making me feel acutely my limitations and simultaneously my potential. Both things at the same time. It readily reveals my shortcoming, the, the direction in which I've been moving and the folly of it. Hmm. Om, for example. Om, it is a big affirmation. It's yes, a big yes. This is the whole of the uh, Indian uh, Hindu uh, revelation starts with this. It's all pranava omkar. Om, it means yes. It's a big affirmation. What you want, it means you can have. And there are thousands of other verses that come after that. But this is how you have to go about it. You have to change the way you're moving. You have to move in a different direction and so forth. So in India, philosophy has always been tied to revelation. And in Europe, that was the case too for a long time. But at a certain point, maybe around Descartes or something, they unplugged philosophy from religion, even though he was a theist himself, inadvertently. And... And while science was blooming and, and starting to, to blossom in terms of providing facilities for, for humanity, uh, goodies, um, amenities, and making the prospect of living in material, the material world more apparently bright, a bigger carrot at the end of the stick, that more impetus to think just around the corner, I'll get a full meal. Your life is really only serving us appetizers. That's all. This full meal never comes. And if you keep eating appetizers, as you know, you will get indigestion. Hmm? 
That's all. The full meal never comes by acquiring, by taking. It never comes. But through science, then we've been... Some, I mean, there's good things about that too, but we've been also led to believe that there, there's a possibility we'll get the full meal. Now we're like fully you know, computerized. We're gonna get a, we've got all kinds of machines and instruments and spaceships and microscopes and go high and far and, and uh, explore the, you know, the smallest particles of matter. And, and uh, so we've got all the tools to, to search the whole thing out, explore every single atom. Certainly we'll find it somewhere that full meal. But, you know, Revelation says, if you could take it all, all the atoms and all their power to to please, facilitate and put in a big syringe and inject it yourself with that, uh, it wouldn't compare to one if you could take it, a tiny atomic particle of the bliss of what you already are, independent of matter, as a unit of consciousness. And the way to know about that involves not, as I say, taking, looking without, but looking within. When they unplugged then, when science wasn't answering everything and philosophy thought there was room for itself to answer certain things, so it went on. The Western world has now a history of autonomous philosophy, autonomous from revelation, and it's coming to an end. These people have thought themselves into a dustbin, practically. And there are many philosophers who will admit it. What's, what will we do now? <laughs> huh? So there are there's, there's some schools of thought that never unplug themselves from Revelation. That means something interesting to us. Revelation is to be thought about, to be reasoned about. We have reason. It has its use. We call it Shastra Yukti, not Keval Yukti. Keval Yukti is reason unplugged from revelation. What a revelation, what I mean by that is the outreach of the absolute of the infinite to the finite. We're alive. Reality must be alive. We're a part. The whole must be alive. We are. Must have a life. It's a living thing. Spirit is a living thing, more so than matter. It can express itself. It does, but not everybody listens. Just like UFOs, you know. Some people see them, some people don't. So if you see a UFO, then you, you come back into the house, it's, I just saw a UFO. It's in the backyard. So you bring everybody there, of course, it's gone by that time. Hmm? So then, but nobody believes you. What do you do? You saw, but no one believes you. Because it was shown to you. So then you go find some other people who have also seen, and you join a UFO club, and, and everyone thinks you're crazy, and... So we're kind of like that. We haven't seen, <laughs> seen any UFOs, but we've seen. Hmm? We've seen something. And we're not turning back from that. Huh? We've seen something living. We're coming from the dead. The investigation of matter, of dead things. It's dead. Matter is only alive to the extent that we lend ourselves to it. If life, if consciousness, the experiencer, lends itself to that which can be experienced, then the experience will take on a life of sorts. We have the power to invest ourselves in things, and that's what makes things important to us. Us. Do you understand? As much as you extend yourself as a unit of consciousness into a thing, that thing has meaning to you because you are in it now. It's your house. It's your house. 
It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> because it's your house, it's really nice to you. It's nice to us too, but you know, if you need a new roof, that's your problem. <laughs> right? So because you've identified with it, hmm? you're in it. You know, you've extended yourself into it, so it has a value to you. What's the value? That you're in it. So with all your things, it's your car, so you've put yourself in it. It's your set of clothes. It's, the, it's this... The whole problem of life is, is a very small word. My. This is the whole problem. Like in Bhagavad Gita. Very nice. What is the first verse? Dharma Kshetra Kurukshetra Samaveta Yutsava Maam Ekam Pandavascaiva Kimakurvata Samjai. There's it. Maam. My. That's the whole message of the Gita and one, the philosophy of the Gita. Theology is a little bit more developed. Mine. That's a more long story, but the idea of mine. Gritarasa said, what did my sons do and the sons of Pandava do? He's making a distinction. Mine, and then there's somebody else's. Hmm? Mine. By my, hmm? we grow in a false way. Nothing belongs to us. We extend ourselves into things that don't belong to, to us, that will be here today and gone tomorrow. Do we think of them as mine? Do we think my house is better than someone else's? My country better than another country? And these are smaller ideas. You see, my makes the things small. Our I, let me elaborate on that, our I, our sense of I, is defined by our my. Whatever you say is mine, that determines what you are. It's my country, so I am an American. It's my state, so I'm a North Carolinian. It's my race, so I'm a Negro. It's my sex, so I'm a woman. It's my this, my that. It's my car. It's me. You come into the clothes store and he says, that's you. She puts on this one. That's you. So our my... Our desires, that determines our I, materially speaking. And nothing is ours, actually. So what is this I? Nothing is ours. Time will tell you that, right? So what is the I, then, that's based on the my? That is illusory. That is, that, no wonder you can't get a square meal. You can't even be. <laughs> you can't endure. You want an enduring existence, but that's not possible in this sense of self derived from my, from attachment. So spiritual life, about moving beyond that. And for that we need good help. Some philosophy is there. We should reason. We need help. The absolute reality will exercise itself in relation to us. Not everybody hears, but if you hear, don't wait for everybody else. You could get beamed up. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> don't wait for anybody else. But we do. We think, well, I, maybe I didn't hear it. Maybe that really wasn't you know, you'll hear a nice talk or something like this, uh, you know, from somebody else in a spiritual gathering, and some points will be made, they will really hit home, and they, you really like it, and then, but they also speak to you about making some changes in your life. You think it's really good, then you go home, and you take rest, and you wake up, and you think, well, I don't know if that was, you know, was it? Maybe that, maybe that wasn't entirely true, and you tried to relativize it a little bit, and rationalize it, and so forth, and 
Next thing you know, that guy was wrong. <laughs> I don't think that's true. So this is our kind of predicament. It readily, the, uh, God does speak to us. The world's alive. I mean, the sun is seems to be, at least it looks like it is, and we know physics are different, but moving across, the, flying across the sky, right? From morning then till sunset, it flies across the sky like a big... A big eye, Ayur Harati Vaipum Sun. Very beautiful to watch the sun rise, watch the sun set. But we have to look at the world with, a, with an inquiring eye, an eye to know the more that we sense that we are or could be beyond our animal limitations. And what will we see? Bhagavad says, nice poetry, Ayur Harati Vaipumsam Ujjanastam Chayamaso. As the sun moves across the sky, Ayur Harati. You know what? Ayur means life, and Harati means take away. With the, as the sun moves across the sky, your life is being taken away. Uh, it's a harsh look at the world. You may say, I like Swami, my life. You're asking me to change my life. I like my life. I like, I'm happy. I like my things. Then I have to say to you, as Krishna says in the Gita, that's fine, but you can't keep it. That's the problem. You may like it. That, that's even worse. The more you like it, the more troublesome it is because you cannot keep it. Dukalayam ashashvatam. In two words. There's a, it's miserable. Well, you say, I like it. I disagree with you. Krishna says, well, you can't keep it. Now what? The more you like it, the more problematic it becomes. Now, I don't want to be a pessimistic, paint a pessimistic picture of life. No. But we have to have an accurate picture of the nature of the predicament we find ourselves in order to make a solution to the problem. And there is a solution. That's the happy thing. I mean, Darwin said that, what? Mm, it's the survival of the fittest. The Bhagavad says the same thing. Jivo jivasit jivanam. One living being is food for another. No disagreement here on that level. But the Bhagavad doesn't stop there. It tells us, yes, this is true. Therefore, you, there's something you should do about that. And you should answer to the intuitive sense, cater, tender to the intuitive sense within, as I say, all humanity, that there's something more. There's something beyond the senses, the limitations of the mind, what can be known by, by intellect. So God speaks to us. That's a fact. We call it, well, let's say revelation. And there are there are forms of that that are reliable. You could take it from, you know, in the Western world, it's the Bible and I suppose the Quran and Old Testament. These are considered forms of revelation. And in the East, we have the Veda, the Upanishad, and so forth. And um, you know, we can look at them all as different voices, different cultures, or, or to a different extent, outreach of the absolute towards uh, the infinite, towards the finite. But to hear that, then we have to be a little bit dissatisfied with the status quo. We have to be interested in pursuing that sense that arises in us that we could be more and so forth. So, to answer to Revelation, this is a point I'm making within many points, uh, the, to answer to Revelation means the full use exercise of your intellect. It's not just you come and somebody gives you some religious dogma and then you follow that and you don't know why or what and, and, it, and uh, you become a superstitious fool. No, re- revelation 
taxes our, our reasoning power. It's to be reasoned about, thought about, reflected upon. My, my Guru Maharaj used to give examples sometimes. He would say that the, the revelation, let's say the, the sacred text of revelation, the Upanishads or the Bhagavad, the Gita, they're like law books, he said. So if you want to make your point in a spiritual circle, you have to refer to the law books and cite the verse that corresponds with your opinion. Just like in a court of law, if you want to say, I believe, Your Honor, with all my heart, that he's guilty. And then the guy says, well, I think that he's not guilty because the law said this on this date, and on another date the law said this, and that the court determined on another date this, and therefore I think he's not guilty. That's how you win the case, right? You don't just go in and say, I think and I feel and I wish that he was not guilty. Arrest my case. You cite the law. So this can, this example that he gave can foster an understanding that there are books, there are law books, all the answers are there, you just open the page, and there it is. A very static kind of understanding of how to actually, as a human being, which is a rational animal, reciprocate and interact, take part in the conversation that is that revolution, revelation is part of. It's a conversation to take part in. You understand? So if we really play that analogy out, we find that the law is determined as time goes on in different circumstances. It's a flexible type of thing. So, you know, when people like Richard Dawkins or something writes a book of the end, what is it? End of the God delusion or something. These are all straw man arguments, these books of such people. They aren't even talking about God. These people are not, they have no, I mean, you know, they may be scientists and educated people, but they should take a course on theology and do some meditation for that matter. These, these, they're attacking something, some uh, that, that doesn't really represent the heart of what revelation is about. Obviously, if revelation descends to the world, information about uh, the fullness of life beyond the confines of the mind and so forth, then we have to deal with it with the mind, and one ten the tendency of the mind is to make things as mundane as it is. So, while revelation comes to take us beyond our frame of reference, we may try to keep it within our frame of reference and over-intelligently exercise ourselves in relation to it. But there's a way, a pro appropriate way to participate in the conversation with one's intellect. Hmm? Well, that's in one in a crude sense that's called theology. In the West, we've unplugged philosophy from Revelation, and then we come up empty-handed here. So the reason about this, we say reason has its limitations, but we should take it to its limit. I once was explaining something like this to a person, and he said, "I said, you know, you should use your reason to to to, to um, find the truth." And he said, "What am I supposed to do? Go to every religious tradition and exercise my intelligence?" I said, "Why not? You know, to try that. Yeah, you could try that." <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, there's so many. Well, there aren't that many, actually. A whole bunch of them you could just throw out right away. <laughs> you know, there's a collection of wisdom traditions that, for tradition, for centuries, have produced results, people, hmm? examples, who are luminaries in, in society, actually. And luminaries in terms of, of that, again, that idea of survival of the kindness. They're luminaries, they're more evolved people, kinder, more compassionate, more giving people, which we all sense is what 
is a more evolved person. So these people are to be marked. And then we tra- they have, there's a tradition. We see to what extent they're shedding light. We may like that tradition, the, the measure of that light, and we embrace that. Others may like another tradition. Embrace some wisdom tradition. Hmm? Then you can debate amongst the wisdom traditions. That never comes to fisticuffs or guns or you know terrorism or anything like that. Uh, there's scope for that. Uh, discussing the nature of uh, ultimate reality and uh, it's uh, it's uh, around the table that can be done. You know, the meal is being served, the full meal. I said material life just providing appetizers. The full meal is descending, may be made available. Come and sit and eat as much as you like. That's the idea. If mystic Christianity is a full meal for you, that's all you can eat, then take that. If you want a non-theistic spirituality, then... You can eat the Buddhist meal. You know that's how much they eat of the whole thing. You take your pick. You come to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Well, you know we think it's a pretty full meal. There's dessert and everything here. On this <laughs> <laughs> and you know we we have the yardstick of reasoning to talk about that. Of course, it's our subjective reality, our faith. Uh, we 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 you know, that's natural. I mean, whatever path you choose, you better think it's the best one. Otherwise, how you apply yourself fully. What's best for you, I suppose. That's best. But avail yourself to what, what, what is available. Take part in the conversation. This is the proper use of human reasoning. Proper use of human life. It's said that we're rational animals, so this is how to use the intellect. As I said, use the head to soften the heart that we may grow by giving. Hmm? And potentially, then, the idea is, and know in a way that we could not otherwise grow, know, to know means, to know perfectly means to be happy, perfectly happy. That's what everyone wants. It's really, you know, it's really a very simple thing, but it's very hard for us to do. That tells us something about our, our conditioning. We have to be a little honest of where we are in the whole thing. We, we want to be perfectly happy. So, how happy are we? And then let's analyze the basis of our happiness, what it derives from. Will it endure? If my happiness is based on having a bigger screen, then when my child pushes it over and breaks it on the floor, I might become unhappy. So, you know, we want our hair to stand on end at every moment. That's how happy we want it. So how close are you? Then you know, oh, you have to do some, has to move. You have to change. Spiritual life mandates some change. It's not a fence-sitting affair. You have to get involved, and you have to get as involved as you're eligible for, as you have a level of interest. How will you increase your level of interest, which affords you eligibility, associate with people who are more interested than you? That will promote your interest. That will be contagious. Cooking is a gradual thing, but you have to have the food on the fire, (laughs) otherwise... I come in and say, you know, when's the dinner? It's coming, you know. (laughs) Turn on the stove would be a good idea. That would be start the fire. So what is the fire here? Fire is good company, sadhu sangha, association with sadhus. That that will that will that will challenge us. And if we are challenged, then we have opportunity to to grow. Hmm? This is the purpose. Their example, their speech, that should inspire and challenge us and that this is the company we should keep we should try to keep company of higher people our tendency is to keep the company of lower people 
then we feel much better. We're in control. But how much prospect is there for growth if we're our company is only people who are lower, I mean, if there could be such a thing, than us? Less evolved, let's say, than us. But we're more comfortable with that. This is our, again, this is, this is the backwards way in which we've been going for eons and lifetimes to be, of trying to be the controller. You have to let, that's the Hare Krishna, you have to let go. You know, so the arms go up like this, I give up. <laughs> that's too much. This is, do it this way. Dance your way back there beyond your limitations. Mutu. So, yes, good company. This is uh, important. So I'm very happy to have your good company tonight. Are there any questions? <laughs> what is the, um, um, if persons who are more elevated, more open-hearted, mm. their interest, interest is in to associate with those that are more open-hearted than they. Mm-hmm. So what is the, what is the um, impetus for them to associate and try to help persons who have less open heart than they do. Yes, the impetus is that when you associate with more, suppose that we're more spiritually advanced, and you take advantage of that, and you're growing as a result of that, and you want to, let's say, satisfy such persons, you want to you want to emulate them and, and learn from them. Like if you want teacher, a student wants to satisfy the teacher, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mean just bring an apple or something like that, but the, you know the, the, I've I've learned something. So he the student, teacher wants you to grow, student wants to grow. So if you take advantage of good association, higher association, then you grow. And and then the teacher says, now I want you to give this knowledge that doesn't belong to you, by the way but it's some has come in your direction, now I want you to share it. So then you, that person then associates with the higher saint, so to speak, by way of carrying out that instruction and catering to those of greater necessity. And so that there's a way of being connected also as we advance that lies beyond physical proximity. But... Not everybody can take advantage of that. To an extent, everybody can. But we should try, we should try our best to keep good company mm-hmm. and as close as possible. That will be good for us. And what will happen, you know, of course, as, as, we, as we do that, we'll begin, to, we'll begin then to see, this is the experience, by really taking advantage of good association, good company, over time, what we begin to see is that that good company is not local. It's not provincial. It's not local in one place. It's universal, actually. The guru, for example, is local in one place, but what the guru embodies is something that's universal. And that's what the guru, he or she, is talking about, exemplifying, explaining. So as we begin to imbibe that and to digest that, then when we turn and look at the world... What, what we start to find that my guru, if you will, is speaking to me everywhere. That's the message of Bhagwat, like the 11th canto of Bhagwat. There's Abudud, he has 24 gurus. The bee is his guru, the tree is his guru. What's happened is he's, he's taken advantage of a particular 
outreach of revelation through the form of the, the guru, which is prominent, and the guru may say, just listen here. Listen to me only. And if you listen well, then as I say, then you turn around. He turns around and he starts to see every, the whole world has actually been speaking like this to me all the time. The whole world is, 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 is speak like the sun is saying, you can't keep it. You can't, how much louder could you say? Speak. And the sun comes up every day, it goes across the side. Nothing is yours. Nothing is yours. <laughs> We're blind to that. So we need a guru who's going to just, you know, make it real clear. One local manifestation that just makes it really loud and clear. Do it like this. Listen up. Pay attention. And then, you, then the environment you, you, that's always been speaking to you, you can start to read it. You can start to hear it. <coughs> then, you're in, you're, then you're a good association. <laughs> then you're connected, right? Wherever you are. Hmm? But then, you know, then yeah, this, is, this is good. Is See, we, have, we have experience hmm. dealing with persons taking up this idea and, and becoming um, proficient in one way or another. And then, like you were saying before, the tendency is of those is to associate with persons lower because in that situation, then you're the one in charge and you can control the people who are lower. Mm -hmm. So over time, uh, we may have experience of this, this type of things going on so a person could become less enthusiastic to again and again and again embrace finding, finding a, running into this situation. So how do we overcome, overcome that? I'm not sure I understand your question. Overcome what? Overcome the hesitancy of again and again. Taking good association? Yeah, because by nature... You gravitate towards the other end. Yeah, by nature, mm -hmm. if I do become proficient in something, that my tendency would be, not well, only, it may at first be to associate with persons to give what my guru has, has taught me to, but by... And then, then it morphs into controlling those people and for something other than what it originally started out as. Let me say two things. If I, uh, one thing I want to mention is that when a person really takes advantage of good association, then, when, then, then if he only associates with people who are less advanced, but he's actually taken advantage with association, then those students also become his teachers. So he has, that person then, he or she has a way of learning from the students also. Because he or she knows we are all students forever. I may look like a teacher from this side, but from that side I look like a student. Nature of the, the, the subject matter is that there's always more, uh, it's unlimited, but, uh, but it grows nonetheless. That's one thing I want to say. The other point is, I think, that your, your question as well, I understand it correctly, people may take good association and then they may try to give good association and then they may become, due to their conditioning, fall into a trap of associating with persons who are less advanced and getting stuck there and, and so forth, right? What? And controlling the people and whatever. Well, I, one answer to your question is that that we're lucky that the nature of good association is it tends to be a little outgoing and aggressive. Prabhupada, for example, said, I came to your country as an aggressor. <laughs> the holy name itself has an agenda. It goes out, and uh, Hare Krishna Mandra goes anywhere. Even if you don't want it, it's, you can hear it on the streets. 
and find yourself, all right, Krishna, where did I get that? You know? So it's kind of like there's this outreach going on. So we're lucky that saints tend to be a little bit like the, uh, an active agent of divinity, where this t- scripture tends to be a passive agent of divinity. Active, it goes after you. It says, did you understand? Are you sure? Explain to me how you understood. The book can't do that. But the sadhu can. So, of course, they can't be everywhere at all times, right? So the problem still happens. So one thing I think that should be clear is we should expect that there will be problems. Don't be surprised when there are. Don't think why it's so great, why, why it happens. Like That's just the nature of the thing. Life is like that. Good things will be abused. Be sure of it. The best things will be abused in the worst way. That's also true. So you should be prepared for that. Don't let that be an impediment to going forward yourself, which is kind of the implication of a question like that in some respects. People have a doubt and they think, well, you know, uh, so... No, don't let... You should be prepared for that. You should know that. It's so much... How much that is a stumbling block for people. They see, well, um, someone had a good association, someone became good association, then someone ended up... That's what's... Ended up just manipulating me and so forth, and this is terrible. You know, these things happen. You can expect it. Some people say, I've heard it, you know, like, well, you know, like in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we have a first generation of gurus born outside of India, which is kind of like the homeland of this tradition. So, and then some, some gurus representing the tradition, they, they don't always live up to the ideal. So then people sometimes think, man, that's right, i got to get myself an Indian guru. And I'll be, you know, I'll be safe. But India is the land of bogus gurus. <laughs> per capita, there's more bogus gurus in India than anywhere in the world. You can be sure of that. So the thing happens, that's the point. It's not a new phenomenon. It's not an isolated phenomenon. Good things will be misrepresented. That just means also that there is proper representation somewhere. And what will bring us in touch with that? All I can tell you is your sincerity, that's all. And you should doubt your sincerity also. That has been always my practice. When I was a young man, I joined this kind of lifestyle when I was uh, maybe 22. I'm 60 this year. So uh, I've been living monastic life for 30-some whatever it is years. And I always would... Um, when you pray, then you have to pay attention, right? And when you pray, then your shortcomings come to the fore. It's real clear. You know what they are, and so you're embarrassed by them. I'm praying, but I've got this attachment. I know it. <laughs> And so if you're honest and brutally honest and you tend to doubt your own sincerity, I used to pray that I could be sincere about being sincere, something like that. Krishna says, Pujapachita Maharaj rendered it in a beautiful way. Sincerity is invincible. So truth attracts truth. Be honest, be truthful to, the, to your core as best you can. And that is what you'll get. And you think, I was really sincere. And I didn't get that. Didn't think again. The problem, think it comes to the shortcomings on my side, not on the side of the absolute. You think like that, and you you have good, increase your capacity for purchasing power, to the truth. You know they say it's also they say it's hard to find a good guru. But it's really hard to find a good disciple. I can tell you that. (laughs) Any other question? Yes. Um, I have my friend Sherlock. He's also uh, from the Baha'i faith, and he's very 
interested to ask you a question. All right. How are you? Implicit in your speaking, you said that um, there was a subjective reality and having to do with that this is the best faith. Earlier, as I understood it, you said... Um, in one sense. Yeah, no. That um, it, if it's not your best faith, um, then you should not equate your best devotion. Sort of. Right. So my question, the question I wrote for me was that, because implied in what you're speaking is that objective reality, objective sense of who we are is still not attained. Still not there yet, right? Because we're more prone from the mind. We have not attained to this other place. So, is there a, is there an objective best rather than a subjective best? Is, is there a possibility, a possibility for an objective best rather than a subjective best? I think there is an objective best, yes, but at the same time, that there is an objective best in transcendence, in in, in enlightened life. There's an objective best, but that's only a way of, uh, you could say, for example, I gave the example of eating a meal, right? You could say that the objective best is to eat the whole meal and the dessert and everything. That's objectively the best because you got everything that came down that was put on your plate. It was all good. Where the subjective best might have been, well, I, you know, I only wanted this much and my stomach was full, so I didn't eat the whole meal. So you could say objectively, well, he didn't get the whole meal, the full experience. But he's satisfied with what he got. So you can't argue with that either, right? So there are a lot of ways to love God. There's a lot of ways to love a human being, right? Let's say I have a relationship with you as a friend, and I want to love you as a friend. Your wife has a relationship with you as a, as a wife, as a lover. She can say, I got the whole meal. Right? Oh, Swami only got, you know, he's a friend. But that's all I want. <laughs> Another question? Yes, friend. My friend. Uh, Maharaj, you spoke about uh, giving as a very important aspect of uh, evolving our heart. Um, I want to ask two questions. Um, first one is, uh, sometimes I have a tendency to think that uh, first I have to take before I can give, uh, because I don't have much to offer at the present. And the second question uh, I want to ask is, um, what kind of giving is the uh, best one? Uh, what kind of giving is most pleasing to the Lord? Okay. First of all, in order to give, you do have to take some extent. Of course, you can give to some extent, but we have to feel to some extent full in our material self in order to give spiritually. Otherwise, if our material life is too out of balance or too much lacking, too much lacking necessities, which will be different for different people of different psychologies also, then uh, to that extent, it would be difficult for you to give. So this is incorporated into the whole, of course, Gaudiya Vaishnavism or any, or any spiritual tradition. So there's a place for taking to an extent. If you're going to jump up and touch the stars, it's good to start with both feet on the ground, right? Not with just on one foot teetering materially. So there's a kind of a horizontal growth that should be cultivated 
that fosters vertical growth. Vertical growth means like inner spiritual experience. And to use a, a Hindu kind of term, uh, horizontal growth is, uh, is a social religious, uh, varnashram or something, to come into balance, to use in modern society, to be happy psychologically in balance, you know, as much as that's possible. <laughs> uh, whatever that means. No. <laughs> you need to feel good about yourself. You have to feel somewhat good about. I mean, we're really we're not a hungry nation, but we're like really psychologically de- deprived or depraved uh, as a result of you know that's the product of industrialism and uh, um, modernity. Actually, it's 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 really a child of an unwanted child of, of modernism, psychological dysfunction. It's really t- difficult. It's it's painful. It's painful for me. As I said the other night feelingly to witness it's because it's very hard then it people are suffering their need in need and not just as I say physically maybe suffering in a country like this where we have so many amenities and so forth not, not unless they struggle with with things like you know self-esteem and uh, you know crippling actually um, realities for people um, depression and so forth I mean I don't have those things but I you know I can understand what they are. So it's very painful to see that, experience that. And so there's some place within the spiritual circles to minister, so to speak, along those lines, to help people on that level horizontally, not in and of itself, but in the context of helping them to grow vertically. So I agree with you. It's hard to give when you don't have much or you feel lacking in terms of basic necessity, which could be different for different people. Some people, if he doesn't have his own house, it's a problem. Some people, it's if they don't have their own a meal, it's a problem. But it's as much of a problem for, for the person who doesn't have a house as it is the problem problem for the person who doesn't have a meal, in the mind anyway. So the, it's not a, just an even playing field here. So th- that's important. And so therefore, uh, spiritual teaching should take that into consideration. We can't just expect uh, everyone to go straight up like this, vertically. And then the second part of your question was, what's the best thing to give, right? Yeah. Yourself. That's, uh, that's the only thing we're asking for, your heart. <laughs> we're not asking for anything else. But because your heart is in other things, we'll take the things. Hmm? Let's say your heart is in the money, so we'll take your money. We'll use it for you. In a way that you couldn't have used it, print a book, hmm? a Bhagavad Gita, then give it back to you and charge you for it too. <laughs> so, if your heart is invested in things, then give the things. Gita says, but higher than that, then is to give yourself. Right? Gita instructs like this: higher giving than the giving of material things. So what is the verse? I can't remember. Anyway, is to give of the self. In other words, you put yourself on the altar. You know, we do these, like we did a homa, a fire sacrifice today when there was initiation and so forth. So they're throwing the grains in there and putting the banana in there and the ghee in there. And, you know, you've got to think about what it's, you're supposed to be like growing. It. Then you say swaha, swaha. Swaha means I give myself swaha. I give myself entirely. I give my heart. I invest myself entirely. And I come out of the fire whew, in a new form, in a different form. I now have a 
sadhaka deha. It's not a siddha deha. It's a sadhaka deha. But it's not a it's not a material form either. It's a form suitable now for for, for becoming a siddha, for becoming perfect. You know, it should be treated accordingly and so forth. So, another question? Well, I was thinking when you were talking about spiritual life entails change. So I was feeling how devotees, you know, when they first become or join or, you know, there's a drastic change, so much change. And then almost like we go kind of back to, you know, more horizontal, like you're saying, the more horizontal growth. So how can we, as like householders or, you know, working and raising families, how can we, or what, what should we expect or try, strive for? What kind of change? It might not be so external, but we still want change or growth. So. Mm-hmm. Stay with your husband. I know it's difficult. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Things like that, you see. You have to sacrifice. <laughs> you have to. Uh, the, the household of life gives so much wealth of opportunity to sacrifice. You live with somebody else. Relationships. That's why I'm a monk. I'm, I'm a cheater. You know, I don't want to work hard. <laughs> Relationships are very, very hard. And if you do the hard work of that and raising children and so forth, you can very much grow from that. You can grow. You can. You can grow. You have to sacrifice and. And um, so look at your, you have to look at your household situation like that, like an ashram, it's, it, like it is an opportunity to grow, not like it's a problem that I have to get rid of and then I can grow again. No. no you're there for a reason. That, your psychology mandates that. That's horizontal you know, growth for you. You have to have a relationship. That's where you feel comfortable, feel whole, and so forth. And, you know, sometimes... But in, in a married life, then, you know, they say, well, the magic's gone. That happens, too. And so then people go looking for the magic somewhere else. But the point is, it's magic. It's not, it's not really what it, you know, it seems to be. You have to see it for what it is. And it's not just infatuation. Love is about sacrifice. And if two people are together, in the center of their life is, is God, Guru. You, know, you, you should love your Guru more than your husband. That probably wouldn't be hard. And let your husband should love your... I don't mean like that, but <laughs> love the husband should love the guru more than, than the wife, something like that. Hmm? Um, uh, then it will work, to, work together. But anyway, household life is, a, is an opportunity for growth, much growth. So sometimes we look at it as something to move away from, and I can't grow there, and so on and so forth, and that becomes then become a little stagnant. Otherwise, so in the context of the relationship itself, you should look for room to growth. And, and besides that, then, as I say, you invite sadhus to your home, like you've hosted me in your home, so this is good. You'll grow from that. Hmm? And to use your resources also. You use your, how you say, um, what do they call it? Uh, this disposable income. I know you don't have much of that, but uh, you use your disposable income to foster these type of activities, to hold these kinds of programs and so forth, and uh, then that will cause you to grow also. So, those are some tips, I guess. Um, but, you know, you ask the question, so that's a sign of good health. You want to grow. That's, you have the desire to grow, to change, to change. How should you change? How should you change? Oh. 
gradually, I guess. <laughs> you should change gradually. Find time always for spiritual practice. Don't let the household situation get in, in the way. Because it will rule you, overrule you, your spiritual practice if you let it. So you have to set a standard and don't let it overrule your life. You have to make... And people will adapt. That's a fact. Children will adapt. This is the way it is here. We do it like this. Mom takes time for chanting every morning. And uh, if, if you're determined to that, then someone will appear. Grandpa will appear and take care of the kids. <laughs> the chant on the way over. <laughs> so, I, anyway, I just want to say that don't think that the household life isn't an opportunity to change and to grow. It is. Another question? Yes. How is it that... Uh, when, how do you how do you exercise your like heart when you're talking about like bhakti is an exercise of heart? Mm -hmm. It's not just uh, an intellectual affair in any relation. You know, in, in our meditation, you know, mantra meditation. Then I found that you know you, you chant and then some you go through like different kind of uh, phases of. There's like a kind of a dry phase, and a, you know, sometimes it's dry, and sometimes it's like <laughs> drier, and then sometimes it's like, you know, sometimes it's like nectar, you know, it's like it's like full, and so um, you know, what? How is it that you just bring your heart into it more? Because as far as I've understood from hearing similar questions, you know, the, the answer was, you know put your heart into it. It's like a love affair. It's very hard to teach love, isn't it? That's what you're asking me to do, you see. <laughs> How will I love? And you want me to teach you that. That You have to learn from your experience that when you do give, and then the, the name dances on your tongue, you know I'm doing something right here. And then when he stops, and, the, and it just seems like the tongue is moving, but there's, 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 there's no taste, something like that. Then you have to think, uh, you, you, what attitude, what frame of mind, what disposition I had that caused that him to uh, reveal himself through the name. And also, um, you have to be very thoughtful. You have to be very intelligent. And so sometimes, in order to go forward, you have to go backward. Like the Gita says, for example, you should be moderate in your habits of eating, sleeping, and recreation. So sometimes you need recreation also. So sometimes you may try to, to push yourself beyond what is your real capacity to give by the force of your, your mind's idea of what it means to give, and you run into a wall of your conditioned resistance. You have to step back from that then and, and, and take a break from your practice. Not that you should stop, but if you're sitting and chanting and one hour and then two hours and it's not working for you, then you can put down the beads and you can pick up some cartels and try that. Just, you know, chant, for example, or, or read a book. Spend two, three hours, whatever you can, every day, trying to become absorbed. That's what we're trying to do. Be a little bit like, you have to learn to tell your own temperature. You, you, it's your responsibility to adjust 
it's flexible. Hearing, chanting, remembering, there's a lot of things you can do, right? Hmm? So you, if, if they find the chanting not working, then start hearing. Pick a book and read it. Some inspired section. Then go to the then go and return to the chanting. Something like that. Hmm? It will help you. And so that's what I mean by recreation, if you, if you will. Sometimes you have to step back from your practice or adjust your practice. But despite that, obviously there are going to be some stage that you're going to have to pass through that is kind of a, a fire of um, purification or something like that. Hmm? Um, and uh, nobody said it would be that easy. It's easy in comparison perhaps to other types of spiritual exercise, like staring at a blank wall for hours, but uh, some perseverance, some determination is required. Otherwise, the giving of your heart, like I say, it's hard to, to, to tell you how to love, which is what you're asking, how can I give my heart? But you, you can watch and see where your heart goes naturally when you see your young son and your heart just leaps like that. And you think, that's how I want to feel towards the name of Krishna. That's how I want to so get some idea of what it's like, how it works. And then you sit down, and that's what I want to express. You think about it like that, intelligently. Otherwise, you might just sit down and go through it all, uh, mechanically also. So you watch and see where your heart is, where it goes naturally. Of course, and you know it goes there, but it's kind of a dead end in terms of providing any spiritual, and you know, deep spiritual enlightenment experience. But you see, you have a heart, and you know that you do give it, and so you, you learn something about it, and then you try to apply that in relation to the holy name. Hmm? And if you have any sense, if you think, you know, like, oh, that's another thing, but if you have a sense of the kind of love you like, then, you know, if you like friends, then you think, I want to be Krishna's friend, then you can sit down and try to make a friendly relationship with the holy name. You know what it's like to be someone's friend. Have a good friend. So anyway, like this, uh, uh, you have to, that said, exercise your mind, your your reasoning, your intellect, your head, to soften your heart. So it's good that you question about it. These are some ways to think about it. Prabhupada, of course, used to describe the chanting as crying. So, like a child crying out. So when you're not doing that, you ask, how can I cry out? Well, maybe you need to hear more how bad your predicament really is, or you know, <laughs> that's uh, you know, it takes some takes some time. But I appreciate the sincerity of your question. Any other question? Hi. Maybe we should stop here. Talk for a long time. So thank you all very much. This is very. Wow.